Welcome to the History Today podcast. In this episode, The Prophets of Slavery, a report on the International Medieval Congress, and... Later in the show, we'll be speaking to John Pirozzi, director of Don't Think I've Forgotten, a new documentary that looks at the lost history of Cambodia's rock and roll scene. Firstly, a quick mention that the September issue of History Today is out now. This month we have David Motterdell on the failed Nazi plan to mobilise the Muslim world, Rachel Christian on British colonists in the New World, Anthony Percy on the life of Isaiah Berlin, Matthew Lyons on the challenges facing young academics, and Laura Stewart on why there were no levellers in Scotland. The Legacies of British Slave Ownership is a project based at University College London, which, since 2009, has been examining the extent to which Britons were involved in slave ownership. Katie Donington is one of the project's researchers. In the September issue of the magazine, she's written an article about how one family in particular profited from the slave trade. Earlier this week, she spoke about her work with History Today editor Paul Lay. Can you tell us something about the project, uh, what its um, aims and achievements so far have been? Well, the project has taken the records of the Slavery Compensation Commission uh, and has digitised them. And it's a part of the process of abolition that most people probably won't have heard of before. And that was the decision by the British government as part of the measures to bring about an end to Caribbean slavery Uh, to compensate the British slave owners to the tune of £20 million. And that created a bureaucratic record, an archival record, of all of the slave owners or all of the people who thought that they might have um, a claim of ownership in enslaved people at the ending of slavery. And so those documents give us access to their names, where they lived, their gender how many enslaved people they owned and where those people uh, were located. So it gives us a snapshot of slave ownership at the ending of slavery. You say that one of the best uh, ways to approach the topic of slave ownership, which is such a vast, um, a vast subject, is through the lives of individual slave owners. I think so. Um, I think that the history of transatlantic slavery is one of those big histories. It's a big history in the same way that perhaps we might think, you know, the history of other traumatic instances like the Holocaust is big history. Um, And I think it becomes easier to understand it when you follow the narrative of individuals. I think that ordinary people become embroiled in historical events and it becomes easier to understand, not to condone, but to understand how people become wrapped up in these events involved if you look at them as human beings and if you take an approach which considers people's humanity which looks at family links uh, which perhaps looks at local history those big huge global events then become I think much more uh, understandable they become more human they do as well yeah so um, you, you concentrate in the article on this family of sinners as we call them the Hibbert family 
um, and one character in particular, they originally made their money uh, during the Industrial Revolution producing cotton goods in Manchester. So could you explain to us just briefly how they got from that industry, one of cotton goods, which we broadly benign, into that uh, of, of slavery? What was the route they took there? Well, I think when you look at the history of cotton, it becomes somewhat less benign when you consider how it was being produced at the time, which in large part was via uh, slave labour in the Americas uh, and in the Caribbean. Um, and so the Hibbert family already had um, connections in the slave trade via producing um, cotton goods for uh, sale or for uh, bartering on the west coast of Africa. So they were supplying goods to slave trade um, merchants and captains in Liverpool. And that's how they started off becoming involved with the wider slavery business. And eventually um, they decided that it would be a good idea to send one of their sons over to Jamaica to act as a slave factor himself. And so you can see incrementally from a kind of peripheral involvement in cotton manufacturing to a central role in slave trading and eventually plantation ownership um, and sugar trading that they become more and more immersed in in the whole world of, of slavery in the 18th and 19th century. And you, your central focus is on the figure of George Hibbert, um, who became uh, a leading member of, of, of what you call, and what was known at the time as the West Indian interest. Um, can you give us some sense of how extensive his involvement in slave ownership was and, and, and how you can work out um, that uh, the extensiveness of, of, of that interest um, given the materials that you, that you had, the archives that you were dealing with? I think George Hibbert represents a really interesting story in terms of how he becomes involved in slave ownership because unlike the rest of his family or a number of his family, he didn't actually go to Jamaica. He remained at a distance. Um, he becomes involved in slave ownership and we know the scale of his slave ownership through his activities as a merchant he was what was known as a West India merchant who um, sold sugar, but he also lent money to his creditors in the in the in the colonies. Um, and when they were unable to pay that money back, he foreclosed and took their property, and that included their property in people. So he ended up becoming a very large scale uh, slave owner, particularly. Um, at the ending of Caribbean slavery because he basically took the compensation money to clear debts from uh, plantation owners. Um, and so he appears in the compensation records as a major recipient. He receives £63,000 um, as an individual and collectively as a family, the Hibberts receive £103,000. So you then have an idea of the scale of which they're slave ownership is is operating at. And these are vast sums at the time. These are vast. This would be millions and millions of pounds at the time. Now, one of the ironies is that is that um, the Hibbert family settled in Clapham, uh, now in South London, of course, on the common there, uh, in a rather um, attractive building. Um, but Clapham is associated, in the public mind at least, more with abolitionists than it is with... Um, than slave owners, and most importantly, William Wilberforce is, is, is probably the most prominent member. So what drew the Hibberts there onto 
Clapham Common. And how did they relate to the abolitionists? Because, after all, they even attended the same church. Well, I think it's the nature of the area at the time. So Clapham was, at the time, a, a kind of banking and mercantile enclave. It's where wealthy people from the city might have had their suburban villas. And so it's not entirely surprising to find people involved in slavery living in that area. And the Hibberts are not the only ones. Another slave-owning family, the the Wedderburns, they also own property there. So it's very much a kind of a middle-class retreat, if if you can put it that way. Um, It's full of people who are pushing kind of gentlemanly and polite cultural activities it's full of people who view themselves as pillars of the religious community and of course slave ownership was no bar to being involved in um, cultural activities philanthropy um, church going so the Hibberts fit in in terms of you know their social status they might have disagreed fundamentally with Uh, the abolitionists living in the area, but they always maintained um, a sense of politeness and respectability that enabled William Wilberforce to say to George Hibbert, well, you're one of the only one of my opponents who treats me as a gentleman. So, you know, there's this kind of sociability that sort of operates as a kind of mask for political tensions, I think. And George Hibbert was was quite vocal in in his defence of slave ownership, wasn't he? He was. He was a, a leading spokesman for the pro-slavery uh, faction, the Society of West India Planters and Merchants. Um, he was an early advocate for compensation. He first made those arguments in 1790 and he continued to make them right the way through until 1833 when the compensation package was agreed. So he was absolutely... Um, a very strong advocate of slavery. But as you say, he was also very much part of this uh, polite society, this gentlemanly society, Um, something of an aesthete. Um, He had an art collection, substantial library, garden, all paid for from the profits of slave ownership. And it really is quite um, spectacular, some of these collections. I mean, he's a connoisseur and a collector, and it's one of the things I find most fascinating about him he's not um, an uninformed uh, consumer he you know is moving in circles where you know his concept of taste and his ability to be able to judge culture is is bringing him into contact with kind of you know people who perhaps otherwise he wouldn't have had access to he was a member of the Roxburgh Club Uh, He was a founder of the London Institution. Um, His collection was such that he could afford to sell off 27,000 volumes of books and still have his books in his library three deep in his country house. Um, He made a lot of money from the sales of his collection. So although he was an informed um, collector, he certainly wasn't adverse to selling off parts of the collection when his commercial... Uh, needs necessitated that, such as when his counting house required additional funding. When we look at the um, the extent of this compensation, and we look at the uh, the involvement of so many people in, in in slave ownership. Do you think it's come as a great shock to people who've who've come into contact with your research? I mean, it's been dealt with now on television. 
uh, in, in publications like History Today and wider press. Um, do you think it's come as a surprise? I think it's come as a surprise to people. First of all, the entire process of compensation, I think, is pretty unknown. But what the compensation records then tell us about the wide geographical spread of people who owned enslaved people. Um, also, I think a surprising aspect has been the fact that um, you know, 43% or thereabouts of claimants were women. So this gendered aspect of, of slave ownership has also come as a surprise. I think people knew the big headlines, the big stories about you know, the richest of the planter elite, the Beckfords, for example. Um, but I think what they knew less about was, you know, the the widow in Scotland, in the Highlands, who maybe had an annuity on a single enslaved person. And that, I think, comes as a surprise to people to be able to understand that this wasn't something that was peripheral to British society. It was something that was very much integrated and infiltrated into a broad range of areas and lots of different social groups as well. And when we look back at 2007 and what became uh, known as the Wilberfest when we were looking at when abolition was celebrated, do you think there's an imbalance? I mean, there almost certainly is an imbalance between the way Britons in particular think about the slave trade that we often rather celebrate the fact that it was abolished uh, by Britain, the transatlantic slave trade, uh, although that's a rather complicated story in itself, and the extent to which this uh, slave-owning groups, um, you know, made made great deals of money there. I mean, do you think there's an imbalance there? Uh, and there's still presumably much work to be done if there is. Um, I think it's natural that people want to celebrate the best in nat- national culture and the abolition of both the slave trade and slavery is, I think, still a cornerstone of concepts of British national identity. It was mentioned by David Cameron recently in an article that he wrote on British values. Um, but I do think that that is an unbalanced view. And if you want to talk about the history of abolition, then you have to foreground it in the history of slavery Um, I think if you don't do that, then that in part diminishes the experience of enslaved people who suffered and who died. And I think that that needs to be acknowledged um, before you can go on to think about then abolition and and what it means. Mm, Well, it certainly makes for a very interesting article. So, Katie, thank you very much for contributing that. Thanks for talking to us today. Katie Donington there. And make sure to pick up our September issue for more on the subject. Now over to Kate Wells, History Today contributing editor and expert in all things medieval, with a report from the International Medieval Congress. This July saw the 21st International Medieval Congress at Leeds, an academic conference at which the world's medievalists meet to present and discuss their latest research. This year's congress is bigger than ever before, with around 2,400 medievalists converging on Leeds for the week. The theme this year was reform and renewal, although papers and sessions were not limited to that topic. Sessions ranged from discussions of military power in medieval China and the archives of J.R.R. Tolkien to the uses of animal parts in medicine and bilingualism across the medieval world. Medieval studies also crossed paths with maths and computer sciences as network theory was applied to medieval texts to explore the social structures of Beowulf and some saints' lives and to reconstruct how um, social structures were represented in literature. A notable hot topic this year was that of public engagement, the question of how we, as medievalists, share our research with the wider world. 
Medieval studies has been very prominent in the public eye this year, with the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta and the recent reinterment of Richard III's body at Leicester Cathedral. Medievalists have increasing opportunities to share their work with an increasingly interested public. Roundtable discussions were held discussing the different ways we might do this, through social media, where images of manuscripts in particular are hugely popular, the traditional press, documentaries, radio and so on. And elsewhere, a session was held by the team from the Tower of London. In their papers, Megan Gooch and Lauren Johnson talked about the engagement work done at the Tower, how it complements the history that is taught in schools, and how it is grounded in serious historical research. Public engagement there is done literally. Children and adults are engaged and engaged with as they are encouraged to participate. This year also marks the retirement of Professor Ian Wood from the University of Leeds, and a series of sessions was held in his honour, focusing on the wide-ranging areas of his research, the Merovingians, the Anglo-Saxons, the early Christian church and the late Roman world, among many other topics. These sessions showed the breadth of Professor Wood's career, but also showed how the field of medieval studies has progressed as researchers constantly revisit and revise previous work. New methods and technologies are applied and continue to change our understanding of the period, and this is not a field that is stuck in the past. Several papers were given on the subject of personal names and how they reflect culture and identity. For example, in the Germanic cultures, if they can be so grouped, familial connections are shown through names. They could share elements, alliterate or even rhyme within a family or wider community. In this month's issue of History Today, we have a piece by James Chetwood from the University of Sheffield in which he discusses the Anglo-Saxon naming tradition and that demonstrates all of those features. Names were not just used to express family relationships, but to identify people with their communities and to distinguish them from outsiders. They also followed fashions. They might adopt Norse elements as the Viking presence became more accepted. Um, Or across the period, we see a shift from using names associated with strength in battle, such as wolf or bear, to using names drawn from the canon of Christianity as priority shifted and society settled. In another session at the Congress, the Dictionary of Medieval Names from European Sources was also launched and is available online now. And there you can see a database and look at the history of lots of different names across medieval Europe. Um, And as is now becoming traditional, the Congress ended with demonstrations of sword fighting, falconry, much appreciated sunshine, cake and some dancing. Thanks to Kate Wiles for that report. Finally, we're off to Cambodia and more specifically, the country's forgotten rock and roll scene. Here's Rhys Griffiths with more. After Cambodia gained independence from France in 1953, its government under King Norodom Sihanouk pursued a policy of promoting the arts and culture. As a result, the country's capital, Phnom Penh, became a cultural hub and the country experienced a golden age of music, which was all but eradicated two decades later when Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge took control of the country. Don't Think I've Forgotten, the new documentary by director John Pirozzi, takes its name for a song by one of the era's stars, Sin Sisamut, and examines this period of Cambodia's history. I spoke to John about the film and began by asking how he got involved in the project. I originally went to Cambodia in 2001 for the first time to work as a camera operator on a different film, a film called City of Ghosts that Matt Dillon directed. And um, I guess while I was there, we, you know, we were there for f- almost four months, for three and a half months, and uh, got to know Phnom Penh very well and, and started reading a lot and just learning more about the, the history, the modern history of the country. 
And Matt always talked about how he had heard they had this great rock and roll and, and, and popular music scene. So that got me sort of digging around. And, um, you know, the two finding about, out about the music and also being there and realizing you really couldn't find out about the music as far as the history of the music or even what Cambodia had been like visually before the war, before the Khmer Rouge. There wasn't too much around. And um, you could see that Phnom Penh had been a modern city and in its own sort of unique way. So it, my curiosity just from that trip and, and from working on Matt's film uh, really was raised. And, and that's when I, when I got back to New York, it dawned on me that it would make a great vehicle to, uh, to tell the story of modern Cambodia was through the music. Mm. So. Um, so the film begins with Cambodia gaining independence from France in 1953. Um, what was it about Phnom Penh in the 50s and 60s that produced this golden age of Cambodian music? Well, I think it was a number of things. You know, it's sort of, if you look around the world too, it wasn't just Cambodia. You know, obviously after the Second World War, you know, a lot of smaller countries, sort of the in, in a way it was the, the end of colonialism in some ways for parts of Asia and Africa and, and South America. And I think, you know, you find this in other countries as well, this moment where the, uh, you know, the small country is truly independent for the first time in quite a while. And you have this, uh, you know, the world was changing rapidly after the Second World War. And you had young people in these countries who really wanted to be part of what was happening and, and had... Uh, a real urge for anything that was new or modern, and that extends to music. So I think it was partially that. And I think it was also, you know, the other big factor was that uh, King Sihanouk was um, an artist himself and really um, a proponent of the arts and encouraged the arts. So I think those are the two biggest factors. And, and, and I guess the third factor would just be Cambodians love music, and music has always been a big part of their culture whether in dating back to you know ancient times and traditional music so yeah those are the three the three main things i think coming together at that time that that helped and also rock and roll was at its in, in its infancy in the west and was changing rapidly too so yeah make it four things <laughs> um and, and how how important do you think the influence of western culture is then in this period because obviously you can hear it in in the music a lot of like you said rock and roll and uh you know the music from cuba and elsewhere well i think the western influence was really big in the in the main in the capital city in phnom penh it's the way it extended out into the countryside was limited but um but because people because really cambodia phnom penh is the was the main hub for so much of you know Cambodia becoming modern there really is no other city like it that people were flooding in from from the countryside to come there for, to be educated and and um you know to to find a new life so um because the Cambodian elite had really good connections to the French because the way the French left Cambodia was a peaceful way and Sina continued to have French advisors and you know French was the um, was a language of the elite, continued to be at that point. Um, it was natural that young Cambodians that were in France and in Paris were bringing back uh, Western music. So at first, you know, their their um, introduction to Western music was always through this French filter for the most part. Um, so 
so that was important for the initial stages of, of the way the music developed, I think. Hmm. So when did you hear, first hear um, Sinsutamut and Rossere Sophia? Well, you know, it's funny. I told you I, I was working on, on Matt Dillon's film, and there's a scene in his film where um, Jimmy Kahn is drunk in a karaoke bar singing a Rossere Sophia song. And um, up until that point, I really hadn't heard much of the music. So looking through the camera at him butchering a Rosary Satia song didn't particularly impress me. But I guess in some ways you could say that's the first time I really heard the music. But really heard the music, you know, noticing that when you went to the markets and, and all the shops, it was always playing and it was always sort of in the background. Um, the one thing about the music is that Cambodians uh, – sort of resurrected it right away. as soon as the Khmer Rouge, you know, left power, they were digging it up and, and starting to play it again and listen to it again as much as they could. So, I mean, even today, everyone knows all the music and knows all the songs. They, they don't necessarily know any of the history of the music or what happened to people or how the music, you know, developed. But um, it's there in the country everywhere you go. So, um, I, you know, so it was sort of always on the periphery when we were there. When I got back to New York, a friend of mine in, from California sent me this compilation. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called Cambodia Rocks. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of the first one for people outside of Cambodia, I think, to really get turned on to the music. And that that compilation has 20 tracks on it, but there's no album. There's no information. There's there's not even, you know, the artist's names aren't even on the album, much less track listings and information beyond just, you know, it was like 1 through 20. That was it. So um, that's that really kind of spurred me because that, then I, he really distilled down the more sort of psychedelic and hard rock and roll in that compilation. You could really hear that there had been this pretty amazing scene. And, you know, as a side note, just recently I sent him back our soundtrack, which is also 20 tracks, but it has a 36-page booklet with detailed liner notes. So... That was kind of a nice send-off. It's sort of things coming full circle hmm. um, all these years later. And how difficult was it to source the interviews that you use in the film to tell the story? You know, initially it was hard. Um, I, um, I was in Cal living in Los Angeles then, and I was working on other documentaries. And Long Beach, which is about less than an hour south of Los Angeles, has a very large Cambodian population. And... Um, uh, through some people that I knew there, uh, we started to, to find people who had been musicians in this time period. But the interviews were difficult at first because they were just, you know, it was hard to get people to open up. It was really like, oh, yeah, Sin Sissimuth, he was a nice man. And that would be the end of it. You know, who, you know tell us about Sin Sissimuth. So it became kind of frustrating. But eventually I went back to Cambodia for the first time and I hooked up with um, – an organization called the Documentation Center of Cambodia, and its uh, executive director is a, is a gentleman named Yuk Chang. And they've built this incredible network of, uh, of people throughout the country that they've interviewed to um, detail what happened during the Khmer Rouge in a very specific way. And so they had this great network, and Yuk was able to help me find people who had been musicians and, and relatives of musicians. And once we started interviewing those people, that, that round of interviews, that led to other people because they all know, obviously know each other as a small, tight-knit community. So once we went through with Uke and, and met some people, then 
we started getting numbers and phone numbers on our own, and, and I kept going, going back and going back. And it was difficult because I was trying to piece together that this, there was a complete music scene, not that it was just you know a few odd singers here and there, but they really had a network of songwriters and singers and, and musicians, and um, sort of building that up from from the gra- building that up from the ground up was difficult. But um, that's part of the reason why the film took a while was just piecing together the story bit by bit. I mean, I th- we did over 80 interviews to get the the final film done. And the film, I believe, has 29 interviews. And I think the interviews got more detailed as they went along just because we knew more about what we were talking about and knew what questions to ask. I mean, at the beginning, I had three names. I had Sinsisima, Rosary, Satya, and Penron, and that was it. I had no other information. So... Hmm. You know, so yeah, it's the story keeps going. I mean, more people keep coming forward, and we keep learning more information. Even today, even with the film coming out, there's been some great stuff coming in. So, so I mean, after the the Khmer Rouge took power uh, in Cambodia in 1975, the country entered what was essentially a dark age. Um, and the historian you use in the film, David Chandler, describes the country as becoming a, a vast prison farm. Um, what happens to the country's musicians in this period? Well, you know, I think it was a shock to people, first of all. They had no idea the Khmer Rouge were going to be so brutal and so, you know, their plans were just so so um, drastic to change the entire country so quickly. Um, no one really saw it coming. Not, you know, not even the media, the, the journalists that were were in Phnom Penh or, you know, anyone, because the one thing the Khmer Rouge were really good at were being secret and... Um, they kept all this secret from people, but I think people found out pretty quick what was happening and realized, um, that they had to hide their identities. Um, at least the ones who, who, who caught on were able to, to understand this quickly. Some people didn't, but, but the ones who caught on and could see what was happening did what they could to hide their identities. And unfortunately, I think what happened was because the more famous singers were so known throughout the country this became, you know, essentially impossible for them. So what you find is that the top singers, the top stars, have all vanished. Yet the people that were maybe the, the second tier singers or the young singers just up and coming or the musicians who were the, the backing, you know, the band, the band members, um, they had a greater chance of surviving. Hmm. And just finally, John, you include um, footage of, present-day Phnom Penh in, in the film. And I suppose it does make you wonder how successful the Khmer Rouge were at, you know, d- the destruction, destroying this cultural memory. Um, how well-known is this music in Cambodia today? Well, like I said, it's, it's, it's well-known to a degree as far as the songs, physical, the physical songs themselves. But in terms of the history of the music and how it's connected to the history of the country and how the music developed, it's not known at all. So the screenings that we've done in Cambodia, and certainly with Cambodians in the diasporas around the globe, have just been so overwhelmingly positive. And I think there is this big chunk of their cultural history that's you know been taken away from them, and, and in some small way, hopefully, the film help re- helps replace a bit of that. Um, and I, it's also, you know, for Cambodians, too, it's... You know, when people think of Cambodia, it's always this sort of negative connotations, and and hopefully the film, you know, you know, does a little bit to also uh, change that because I think now for people who don't know about the past, they uh, they can see Cambodia in a slightly different light. Now, now. 
And that's all for this episode of the History Today podcast. Thanks for listening.